Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. How you guys doing? Doing good? All right, it's good to be with you guys. Um, if you are new, glad you guys are coming. You are joining us. Uh, a little bit over halfway through, we're actually kind of just concluding uh, the next couple weeks, a series called Finding the Life of Your Love, uh, where we are diving into God's vision and heart towards relationships. Uh, We've talked about that the end goal of every single relationship is love, and that love is defined ultimately by Jesus, that his self-giving, his self-sacrifice is to what is to orient and form how we treat everyone else, meaning that the greatest enemy of love, the greatest enemy of relationships is our own self-centeredness and to take that very seriously and to invite the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ to undo that as we look towards his cross. We've talked about how that translates into marriage. Last week, we talked about singleness and the importance of having a robust theology and a God-sized vision for singleness. And today we are going to be diving into friendship and dating, Uh, kind of as two separate subjects. And so this is not like friendship uh, into more than friends. This is just purely friendship. Um, And then if we have time, which we barely did last service, we will talk about dating. Um, And a little warning next week is going to be uh, rated PG-13. So for those of you who have been bringing kids, so glad that you do keep bringing them, but you just may want to consider that next uh, Sunday as we dive into some, um, some other subjects. I want to give you guys a little heads up there. But as we dive into today and we talk first about friendship, I want to let you know that this has been an interesting kind of wrestling match for me this week as I've been studying. And I'm so thankful because in the scriptures, God reveals himself to us in ways we can comprehend. Because you ever think about the miracle that there is this incredible, cosmic, all-powerful, all-knowing God that created everything that we see and know and yet here we are as finite beings. He chooses to reveal himself to us in ways that kind of are palatable. So he says things like, I'm like a father. Um, I'm a king. I'm a lord. Um, I'm a shepherd. And all of these categories that he gives us, all of these relationships he gives us, he's a groom and the bride's his, or the church is his bride. They're really helpful, but there's one relational dynamic that he gives us that for me, as I've studied this week, that has been really hard, and it's when he calls us friends. And reflecting on my own relationship with Jesus and being like, I, I don't know if that's the first thing I go to. It's really easy for me to identify Jesus as uh, king, lord of my life, uh, some sort of coach, boss, shepherd, what have you, approaching God, even as father has been something I've been cultivating. But as I've realized, approaching my relationship with Jesus through the lens and the framework of friendship has been something I really haven't put much time into. And so my hope is that this Sunday, we would just kind of dive in to where Jesus does one of his most provocative kind of reveals about how he's going to relate with us, his followers, And then we're going to take time to say, well, what does that mean for the friendships we have in our own life? How can the friendship Jesus gives us shape and form the friendships we have with others? And so if you guys have your Bible, you can turn to 
John chapter 15. Um, John chapter 15 is this interesting moment in the story of Jesus because Jesus is about to die on the cross. He's already had the Last Supper, the First Communion. He's washed his disciples' feet, and he's now giving this very lengthy speech that is pretty significant considering he's about to die. And, right, and in the bulk of it, in chapter 14 and chapter six, 16, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit he's going to bring. And right in the middle of that, in chapter 15, he talks about this idea of abiding in him. And after he talks about abiding in him, he gives us this, this, this illustration with handles to kind of grab onto. But it, it, like I said, it's one of those things at the end of Jesus's life, he comes to this point when he wants his followers to know, after all of this, we've come to the place and I want you to know you're my friend. And the reason why I think this is shocking for us is if you've ever had a relationship with someone who you know is like at a different status than you, um, I, I thought about when I was a kid growing up, and I had an older brother who's 18 months than me, and every once in a while I got to hang out with his friends, and everything about my demeanor changed, right? Because I was hanging out with like, the old kids and like the cool kids. So I'd think about how I dressed. I'd think about not saying something stupid or immature. I thought about wanting to be liked. I thought about that there was this adjustment that I made in those relationships because the reality is they weren't my friends. But the to be honest, that's sometimes how I approach God. There is this adjustment that I make when I'm talking to a friend and all of a sudden I'm praying where I, I'm all of a sudden aware of my own kind of self and like how I talk to God and how I approach God. And so I'm sure that his disciples kind of have this same thing where like we, we know you, we have an intimate relationship, but there's just something about you that is obviously different than us, maybe the fact that you're God. Um, and but yet Jesus extends this invitation to them that is incredibly profound and sometimes hard to wrap our hands around. So this is where we're going to be diving into. This is our text this morning, John chapter 15, verse 10. When he says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends. You do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This word for friend, this Greek word phylos, means exactly what we would assume it would mean. It is this deep brotherly-like affection that would be shared between two individuals. This is the word Jesus uses for them, and it's used one other time when he's talking about Lazarus. And so five things from this specific text that can help us get a framework and a theology for what does friendship with Jesus look like. So these are the five things. Number one, we see reference to his incarnation. We see this idea that there is a God that doesn't only exist in heaven away from us, but has now come and dwelt with us and is in proximity to us uh, through Jesus in the flesh and now through his Holy Spirit. Uh, B, we see the crucifixion. We see Jesus pointing this as uh, kind of the pinnacle and the epicenter of what friendship looks like. 
Thirdly, we see initiation. We see that there is a choosing that happens. Fourthly, we see an invitation into his work. We see a commission. We see a come, be a part of what I'm doing. And fifthly, we see inclusion. We see that there is something about this relationship that Jesus wants us to know the inner workings of him and his father. Let's walk through these five things and let's begin to allow this to evaluate our own relationship with God and see, is this true in how I'm relating with God on a day-to-day basis? So let's begin with this idea of the incarnation. Uh, If you're new to church or new to Jesus, the word incarnation might sound a little foreign to you. Uh, This is kind of a fancy word that we have that Jesus came to be among us. Uh, We're about to celebrate Advent as a church. Christmas is coming up. This is the incarnation. This is when Jesus left his heavenly throne, not his divinity, but took on humanity and dwelt among us and lived a life so that he could know us and we could know him in a way that we never had before. Incarnation is powerful and So when Jesus says, I've told you this, that my joy may be, the word is in you. This word is used again and again describing his incarnation. He's with us. He dwells with us. He tabernacles with us. He's not a God that's far away. At the beginning of John's John's biography of Jesus' life, his gospel, John 1.14 says, the word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This has to be the the starting point for our friendship with Jesus. This is not a long-distant friendship. This is one of proximity. Friedrich Buckner, the theologian, says this, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. I don't care how nostalgic Christmas feels, the incarnation can never be common in our hearts. It has to rattle us what God would become man. This is the starting point of us understanding that God desires a friendship with us deep relationship with us. And then Jesus moves on and he gives us more definition of what true friendship looks like when he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. He's just a big signpost to himself. You wanna know what true friendship is? This guy. (laughs) What I'm about to do in a few hours, this is friendship, to lay down your life for someone. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome says it like this in chapter five, verse six. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a radical notion for us to wrestle with again and again and again, that the friendship that we have is not contingent on your friendliness. It is not contingent on your friend worthiness. The friendship Jesus has with you is contingent on his grace and mercy, period. It's a cross-shaped friendship. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus looked down from the cross and saw all the people mocking him, betraying him and deserting him. And in the greatest act of friendship there ever was, he stayed. There's no friendship like this. I'm sure in a room like this, there are people who've experienced friendships, some of which are good, but there's 
Probably just as many people have experienced friendship that's caused wounding and hurt. Where friends have deserted you or betrayed you. Friends that were supposed to be there and weren't. When you were uh, lost or wayward or hurting or in grief, you needed someone and they weren't there. Or they were even worse, they were transactional. They were using you for something. And here in the midst of all that, Jesus says, I'm the kind of friend that shows up at your worst, on your worst day, and I don't go anywhere but give you my best. I've given you the cross as a reminder of the kind of friendship I'm offering you. Tim Keller says, out of all the things you can meditate on to enhance your friendship with God, meditate on Jesus' death as the greatest act of friendship. Thirdly, let's, this passage describes a sort of initiation. I love this. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I find this verse interesting and helpful because often if you ask someone about their faith or their spiritual journey, a lot of times you talk about your own initiation, your own like, well, you know, I was having a hard time in life and I started going to church or, you know, I started just reading this book, I started believing. But according to this, the the initiation is on Jesus's end. The friendship began because he chose you. Which either makes you feel one of two things. Either... You're someone who has incredible self-esteem, maybe a tad bit of pride, and you're like, of course he chose me, I'm awesome. Who wouldn't choose me? I'm a great friend to have. But probably the majority of us are like, man, I wonder if Jesus knew what he was getting into when he chose me as a friend. And I think scripture makes it very clear that Jesus knew exactly who he was choosing, and it was not the potential of you, it was you at your truest, darkest most vulnerable place. In Matthew chapter 11, it talks about the the reputation that Jesus has. It says, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The reputation that Jesus had is he likes to make friends with the people no one else does. So if you're sitting in this room and just church makes you feel uncomfortable, um, you are in the right place. Because this is a God that chooses friendship with people who the world has said you're not friend worthy. I'll be your friend. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who's a, a theologian in Germany, kind of standing against Hitler in the midst of World War II, wrote these words. Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair. And he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And this is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Welcome to church, right? This is the Jesus we serve. These are the people he chooses, the lowly, the broken, and the lost. He's like, oh, these are my people. I mean, don't we all have our, kind of our people? 
you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, let me just be honest. There's just, there's, there's groups of people you get into and you just feel at home. You're like, oh, you get each other's humor. You enjoy each other's presence. But have you ever been in those situations where you go and you're like, these are not my people, right? Um, like, you're just in a situation. You don't get the humor. You don't understand kind of the kind of the, the nuances of the friendship or the environment or the context. And Jesus would look all throughout his creation and find those of us who he's, we would assume God wants nothing to do with. And he says, these are my people. These are those that I find comfort in. And I'm so thankful that as we've watched God develop this this unique community here at Light Church, so many of you guys have shared this sense of feeling like you didn't belong anywhere else. And yet you're reminded in this space, in this community, that there's, there's a space for you, not just within these walls, but within the heart of God, within the heart of us. Next, we have in this passage that Jesus does not only give us an example of the cross and tell us that he chooses us, but then he takes it a step further when he says, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, here's what's interesting about this. There are people that you will be friends with because you feel bad for them, but you won't ask them to help you do stuff. Um, there, there's certain people that you're like, it feels like the Christian thing to do to be friends with you, but I don't know if I would ever have you help me like in my life. I don't want you to come and be a part of this. I think about my children. I love my children. I love hanging out with them. They make me laugh. They're amazing. I do not ask them to do certain things with me because I can't trust them, right? They're precious and I love them, but they're incredibly destructive and they make messes all the time. And if you know me, that's my pet peeve. So I'm just like, oh, you know what? I'll just go ahead and handle this. And what's so amazing is you can imagine Jesus looking at his friends and being like, oh, I really pity you guys. I love you guys. I have compassion towards you. But if I invite you into my work, you're going to mess it all up. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this all myself. But that's not what he does. He, he moves past initiation and friendship and care into trust. Go and bear fruit. Be about my work. Let's get busy. Let's do this together, which is maybe one of the most mind-blowing things for me about the gospel, is that God is all-sufficient, yet he chooses not to work without us by his side. Come alongside me. I can't tell you how many people I talk to just tell me they've been hurt by the church. And part of me wonders, I'm like, God, wouldn't this just been easier if you just did everything yourself? And God's like, no, 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 because you're my friends. I don't do stuff without you. And even if it's messy, and even when you're broken, and even when you live out of your woundedness, I still choose you, and I choose you, and I trust you, and I invite you in to work with me and to be about my redemptive purposes in this world. This is why when Paul writes this letter to 1 Corinthians, or to the church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You don't like your coworkers? Man, just invite Jesus in. That's all, that's all you got to do and make things change up a little bit. I just think about that. I mean, it, it, it's really this paradox that a perfect God would invite his imperfect friends to be a part of his perfect redemptive work and be big enough to handle that. Lastly, from this specific passage, we see 
This idea that it ends with, so whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give you. Now, there's a problem with this verse because as Westerners, oftentimes we see this and we think A plus B equals C. We see an equation and a solution. And then we go and pray for the Ferrari in Jesus' name and it doesn't come. And we're like, oh, equation doesn't work. Um, this is not an equation. This is not written in a culture like ours. This is a highly relational statement, meaning when you pray to my Father, in my name, in my name means in line with my character, it will be given to you. Meaning if you're praying, you're so in tune with my name, it's already a part of God's will and it's gonna happen and you can trust that. Really what this is, is an invitation to, to intimacy and inclusion. Jesus is saying, you're a part of this whole thing. There's nothing that, I've, that my Father hasn't spoken that I haven't revealed to you, says in another text. This is just kind of another radical layer of the kind of friendship Jesus is extending towards us. It's like, I'm not keeping secrets from you. A matter of fact, it says in Psalms 25, so whoever, it says, the Lord confides in those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to him. Another translation says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. How radical is that statement? That we have a God, all-knowing, not trying to keep stuff from us, but is trying to get us to understand. I want you to know everything I have. And the only way you're actually going to get it is if I actually became a man, lived a life among you, spoke your language, lived this life. That's how bad I want you to know my heart. I want you to know who I am. He's letting us into the Trinity. And that sense of intimacy and inclusion is, is this warm invitation for us to know God maybe in a deeper way than you ever have before. You see, God is not a theory to be studied. He's a person to relate with. Do you know, and again, speaking to myself, I love studying about God. And I'm sure God loves to be studied, but more than that, God wants to be known. He wants me and him to have a friendship that quite frankly, this week has really challenged my depth of that. Do I walk with Jesus in such a way that I would just say, this is a friendship. I know the depths and the intimacy that he's revealing to me through his word and through his spirit. I know he's chosen me. I know he's proven that love to me through the cross. I know he's invited me into his work. He's trusted me as a friend. Derek Kidner, who's one of the commentators in the, the Tyndale commentary, says this biblical friendship, this is after he surveyed all of friendship in the Bible, says this biblical friendship is defined by candor and constancy. Candor is an idea of openness or vulnerability. And constancy means just that. It means faithfulness. It means you don't stop. And you think about that biblical idea of friendship and how it applies to Jesus' friendship towards us. It is a constant state of being open with us. He's not hiding things like, hey, I gave you the Bible. Go figure it out yourself. No, he's like inviting us into that. Let me show you. Let me reveal this to you. And all of this is done. Because some of you guys might be like, well, cool for the disciples. They had Jesus eating with them. Well, here's the thing. Jesus, in that very same section, that very same speech says, it's better for me to go away because if I go away, um, I will send the Holy Spirit. I will send the helper to you. So all of this is still for us today. As the followers of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, we have all of these things accessible to us. So what's the point? So Jesus offers us to be this, this dear, amazing friendship, so what? Two things I want us to like weigh today. Number one, would you let that challenge your own interactions with God? 
But maybe this week you would look at it differently. Maybe in your times of prayer, studying scripture, maybe your own journey of faith that you're on right now, would you evaluate, do I have a friendship with Jesus? And how do I cultivate that? Secondly, though, which we're going to be talking about here in just a minute, is what if the invitation to friendship was not only a vertical invitation, but a horizontal example? Meaning, what if the way he frames friendship was not just for us and God, but it was to actually form how we have friendship with other. If you remember at the beginning of the year, we laid out our vision as a church that our goal is to be an apprentice of Jesus. Another word for that is discipleship, or disciple or discipleship. But to be an apprentice of Jesus, we have three goals. Like every disciple would to their rab- rabbi, we want to be with our rabbi, become like our rabbi, and do what our rabbi did. And so our relationship with Jesus means that in friendship, We want to be with Jesus, we want to become like Jesus, and we want to have friendship like Jesus had with others. We don't only want to absorb this, we want to model this and express this out. Time Magazine in 2017 came out with an article based around a study that was done through Michigan State. In their article, it says this, in a study involving more than 270,000 people in nearly 100 countries, author and professor William Chopik And Michigan State found that both family and friend relationships were associated with better physical and mental health and happiness overall. Not shocking, right? Family and friends are important. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. But at advanced ages, the link remained only for people who reported strong friendships, So this massive global study reported that the quality of life, both physical and mental and emotional, was most commonly tied not only to strong family relationships, but even more so, friends. That those who had quality friends into the last years of their life had the greatest quality of life. And a fascinating truism about us as human beings. We were made for friendship. The problem is, throughout the years, some of the friendships that we've encountered have been hurtful. They've been contingent and conditional, which is why it's vital for us to understand how a Jesus-framed friendship can now form how we view other people. And secondly, Jen and I, have we pastored this church in Encinitas, we've come across just the most amazing people. Some of you guys in this room, just look, yeah, you guys are incredible. But here's what's, here's what's astounding, as we've met so many of you, is that the common verbiage we hear from your mouths is, is very much around loneliness and lack of community. And it's been shocking to us, because we look around, we've gotten to know you guys, you've been in our home, we've been in your home, we've had coffee, we've talked with you after church. We're looking at you guys like, you guys are the most friendly people in the world, you guys are amazing. What do you mean there's a lack of community or sense of loneliness? And so I think that as we talk about a kind of a robust theology of friendship, I think that this is a contextual problem in our area. We've worked so hard at success, we've worked so hard at autonomy, that somewhere along the lines, this specific region, we struggle in friendship. We struggle with relationship. And so the reason why we're bringing this up today is not just for us to be like, oh, Jesus is my friend, I feel good, but to challenge us, are you being a friend like Jesus is a friend? So let's take a look at those five things and see how those shape how we become friends towards others. So let's talk about the incarnation. 
and how in us that creates a presence of belonging for other people. We show up incarnationally to others. Secondly, the crucifixion forms in us selfless love, which is vital for any healthy friendship. Thirdly, the initiation that Jesus has forms in us the ability to initiate relationships with others. We can have an outward capacity for those who may not be in your inner circle. Fourthly, the the commission Jesus invites us into gives us a model for redemptive collaboration. And fifthly, inclusion, that Jesus is vulnerable, he shares with us, gives us a framework for faithful vulnerability with others. Who are people in your life who know you, the real you? So let's just walk through these things quickly. Number one, the incarnation is is creating in us, it's forming us a presence of belonging for other people. Proverbs 18.24 says, one who has an unreliable friend soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother I believe in a certain sense that is pointing towards Jesus, but likewise, I think Jesus is pointing back at us. Be this. Be this sense of belonging. Let the incarnation change you, that Jesus came, left heaven to become like us. Do the same for others. Leave the comfort of your own, of your own kind of social group or setting or what's in it of what kind of makes things work for you and enter into someone else's world in the same sort of attitude. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says it like this. And in the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack, even on the least of men, is an attack on Christ, who took the form of man and in his own person restored the image of God in all that bears a human form. Through fellowship and communion with the incarnate Lord, we recover our true humanity. I love this. And at the same time, we are delivered from the individualism, which is the consequence of sin, and retrieve our solidarity with the whole human race. By being partakers in Christ's incarnate, we are partakers in the whole of humanity which he bore. We now know that we have been taken up and born in the humanity of Jesus. And therefore, that new nature we now enjoy means we too must bear the sins and sorrows of others. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnate Lord made his followers the brothers of all mankind. Why is it so important to know about the incarnation? Well, because it gives, us, it gives us a path to walk in our relationship with others. Every single person, because of what Jesus has done, because of how God has created humankind, has a sense of dignity that can draw us into relationship, again, with someone you may not naturally go to or kind of be compelled towards. But the incarnation does that to you. I think about this week... Um, it's been a hard. It's been a hard weekend for my family. As we have just come on the ten-year anniversary of Jen's dad passing away, and family has flown in. We've spent time together, laughing and crying and reminiscing. And one of the most remarkable things this week that's happened is I've watched some of Jen's friends come around her and show up at our door and bring her coffee and flowers send her a text, 
Some of these people, I, we still have no idea how they even knew. We didn't broadcast it. We didn't say anything about it. And yet somehow they found out, knew about it, spent their own time and money to make sure. And these, by the way, these are people who never even met Jen's dad. Thinking about you today. Love you. Praying for you. I'm so sorry for your loss. And as I've been studying about what the incarnation does to us, I just kept thinking like again and again in my face, this is, this is what people are doing to us. They're showing up in our own sorrow, in our own pain that's not their own, but they're entering into it with us because of what Jesus has done in their heart. That's how the incarnation can shape our friendship towards other people. Secondly, the crucifixion. Some of you guys get scared, like, what does that mean? I have to do what for friends? Um, now, again, maybe there might be some heroic moment where you pull your friend out of the way of some moving, you know, bicycle in Encinitas or whatever, and you're like, yeah, I did it. I'm the best friend. Um, cool, awesome, you know, like post about it or something. But the, the reality is there's probably not going to be a lot of physical crucifixion moments happening your way, but there's going to be moments every single day to lay down yourself. There's opportunities every single day to think about someone else above um, your own interests, your own desires, your own wants. Philippians 2 says it like this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, Look, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. It then goes and describes his road to the cross and his glorification after the resurrection. That's Paul's saying. Hey, your, your relationships, your squabbles, your arguments, would you do me a favor? Just have the same attitude and mindset of Christ. Live this out. Let the cross shape your friendship. Think about others in a selfless way. As I was thinking about this point, I, I just kept, kept coming across one of my, my lifelong friends. I think we have a picture of, of young Benji uh, right there in the black shirt. And then right next to him in the blue shirt is our worship leader this morning, Pat Dodd. Um, that's us in third grade. Uh, Pat moved here from France. His parents were, were missionaries over there. And I was his first American friend. And here we are in our mid-30s, and we're, we're still best friends. And, but you might be sitting here, and if you know Pat Dodd, which half of Encinitas does, uh, everyone's like, well, Pat's my best friend too. I get the claim that I was his first best friend. But... We joke, uh, the people who know Pat, we joke around and we just say, this guy's like a professional friend. We don't know what he does for a living. I don't know how he makes money, but he just has this unbelievable ability to think about others, to be everyone's friend. I kid you not, like you'll, you'll get a text like, hey, just remember that your cat passed away three years ago, thinking about you today. And you're like, oh my, I forgot that. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up. No, but he... If you know Pat, you know, not no pressure on you, Pat, but there is this, you just, I, I can't believe you're thinking about me, right? Like I'll have like a, an important night, like I'm preaching on something and I'll get a text on Sunday night at 10 p.m. Like, how'd it go today, man? How'd you feel? And I, I, every time I think the same thing, why are you thinking about me? You know, like why, why are you so selfless that your thoughts are consumed with others all the time? And that's why everyone, when I say like, oh, I'm, I'm friends with Pat, everyone's like, duh, everyone is. And, it's, and, and it has to do with this. He has a selfless, others-centered disposition that's been shaped by the cross. And it's, it's, and it's beautiful. And, and, that's, 
And by the way, it's, and what I love about it, he's not like this crazy sanguine, like just comes into the room. He's this very peaceful presence. He just thinks about others. Thirdly, the, the initiation that Jesus shows um, should do something in us. I mean, there's something that should be rattled in us that Jesus chose us when we were at our worst that should shape how we think about others. Now, again, I'm all for emotional health. I think there are people who, for their own dysfunction, give and give and give to the point where they ruin themselves. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this. Because Jesus has chosen us, would our hearts always be open to moments when he wants us to have an openness towards others? There's that person who just needs to be chosen that day, needs to be sat next to you. Your barista just mingle a little extra 30 seconds and say, hey, how are you really doing? And again, it doesn't require a certain personality type. All it does is it requires a posture of your heart to be open, to choose, to initiate, to have this sense of, you know what, I've been chosen when I shouldn't have been. God, help me have that sense of openness. And again, it doesn't mean you do every single thing for every single person. Um, again, knows a blessed, anointed word. You guys can have health, healthy rhythms. But within that, God never gives us permission to close off our heart for, towards people. Always remain a sense of openness to what God might be leading you to. Fourthly, uh, when Jesus talks about the commission, this, this work he entrusts us with, go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I would just encourage you, would you be a friend that is an encourager and a collaborator in God's redemptive work? Hebrews chapter 10 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as they see the day drawing near. Like, I love this. Encourage one another. Be that person who comes alongside and sees what someone's doing and says, can I, can I just tell you what an amazing job or can I offer help? And when you're doing something, invite someone along with you and be a part of this collaborative, redemptive work because this is the kind of friendship Jesus models for us. I have a friend in LA named Justice who I've mentioned a few times and he's that person in my life who I get a phone call from him every other week and he just reminds me, you're doing a great job. Do you know how blessed we are to get to do what we do, to be married to the women that God let us marry? You're an amazing pastor. And he's, he just lives at Hebrews 10 to me. And every time I get off the phone, I'm just like, you're right. I'm still gonna be a pastor tomorrow. Like I just, there's that person in my life who's a part of that collaborative, redemptive work of the kingdom. We need each other to do that. And lastly, when we think upon and meditate on the inclusion that Jesus gives us into the Trinity, into his heart of his Father, would we model that in our own relationships that we'd have a level of vulnerability and intimacy that won't come natural, but comes intentionally? James chapter five is, is a verse I've wrestled with for years. It's something, it's not natural, but I found it so vital when he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And when you say confess your sins, immediately you're just like, oh man, I gotta talk about that one time I did the thing. And yes, there's definitely a place for that. But what I would say is the idea of sin in the Bible is just missing the part. I'm sorry, missing the part, missing the mark. 
Who are those people in your life that you just go and confess that to? Man, I, I just wasn't the husband that God's called me to this week. Man, I just, I have not been working with the kind of ethic I know would honor God. Who are the people in your life that you have that, that candor and constancy with, that vulnerability with, to say, hey, I just want to do that. And, and, and guys specifically, I want to challenge you. I think sometimes our sisters have an easier time with this, not that it's ever easy, but I see so many guys that don't, aren't only neglectful to do this, they actually don't know how. I don't know how to be honest, not only with the people, with myself. But if we are to model our friendship the way that Jesus did, Jesus didn't withhold from his disciples. He lived in this sense of vulnerability with them. When he's in the Garden of the Gethsemane, he invites them and says, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm, I'm praying, I'm feeling anxiety to the point of, of death. Come be a part of it. He modeled for us a culture of vulnerability within his friendships. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't need to tell everything to everyone. Please don't. You know, like, it's not helpful for any of us. But who's, that, who's those group of people in your life? Here's a group of guys um, that God has kind of brought around the past couple of years for me that have been that for me. And I just, I remember having one conversation. And I'm like, hey, I love being a pastor and this, it's what I do and I love that I get a shepherd, but do I have permission to just be a human being among you? And they're like, absolutely. And that relationship is this beautiful give and take of guys taking turns, just telling on themselves like, hey, man, I, was, I was, did not do a great job this week trusting the Lord in this area. I've been really selfish this week. Could you guys pray for me? Or I have a big trip coming up or a big this coming up. Would you guys join me in prayer? And it's this space of inclusion and intimacy and vulnerability that has done more in my life than I ever thought would happen. And I would highly encourage you, not because it's a good idea, but because Jesus modeled it for us that we do that. We've got a few more minutes. I'm doing better than first service. Uh, because I wanted to just take a moment. Well, you're, you hear this amazing sermon on friendship, hypothetically. And you go and you start cultivating these friendships. And all of a sudden, for some of you guys who are single and looking towards marriage, as, as an option, all of a sudden, that amazing friendship that you've been cultivating turns into something a little bit more. And so I wanted to just take a moment to talk about dating, what happens in this arena. Again, this is a completely separate subject, but I want to just talk about a minute for those of us, again, I don't, I don't care, like, I've been married for 50 years, um, awesome. Like, maybe this could be some information or some wisdom you can pass to someone else. But there is a sense, because because this church is new, there are younger people who are attending this community. And even personally, my daughter's in junior high and she's starting to ask questions. Not that she's interested, thank God. <laughs> but it's the world of her friends right now is, is liking boys and dating and who's, who's boyfriend and girlfriend. And I am just um, incredibly fearful. Pray for me every day. Um, she'll be okay Second born will be okay. Our third born is already in love and is pledged with three different guys. So just pray for her. She's, uh, she loves love. Um, but let's admit it. We, we all love love. We love romance. No matter what is happening in your current life, we're kind of obsessed with it. As a matter of fact, one-seventh of the entire world turned into uh, when Kate Middleton and Prince William got married. Over a billion people to watch a wedding 
or a king and a queen. There is this sense of our culture that is obsessed with this idea of pursuit and romance and love. And although the Bible does not have a single verse on dating, um, which we'll talk about in a second, it has a lot to say about romance. Uh, But before we dive into what the Bible says, just a brief history on how we arrived where we are today on dating, Uh, because dating is a relatively new thing is that up until about the 18th, 19th century, marriages were arranged, period. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't romance. It doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, people having say in that. But up to that point, you married whoever was arranged for you. That was part of the culture. Um, Around that time, the 18th, 19th century, we see in literature this idea of calling or being called upon start to come in where where a woman would let a man know that she's interested, you may come and call on me. The, the man would come to the, the woman's home and ask the parents if he can call on her, and they would then spend an, a, a period of a few months um, of courting where their relationship would develop within the home. And then in 1914 is the first time that we see the word dating show up in literature, and it's kind of at the, the turn of that century, we see this new uh, kind of thing happen right along this kind of turn within the Industrial Revolution where people are leaving rural areas and moving to cities where there's really no family to hang out with anymore. So you wouldn't go and hang out with the family. You would invite them out of the family to go have dinner. You'd go and see a show. You'd go and have some entertainment. And hence, the dating culture slowly began to become uh, kind of normalized, and within about 100 years became the absolute norm. This is what we do. And despite uh, certain subcultures and even Christianity to try and fight dating, it's bad, uh, it's where we are today. And, and I think that God has a lot to say about it, that God's word, his heart, can help form how we think about dating. And it's the same thing that's formed on marriage, singleness, and friendship. It all begins with Jesus's display of love for us? And how can that shape our idea of dating? Uh, For the sake of time, I don't get to do a whole message or an exhaustive um, kind of state on on what I I believe God's heart is for dating, but there's a few things I would love for you to know. Um, John Mark Comer wrote a book called Loveology, and he lays out four different ideas that he finds in the the book Song of Solomon um, about romance. And some things that we can find within that that God can speak to. So I want to walk through these four things from his book. And if you don't, again, if you want more of this, you can go buy his book or another book on God's heart for this or send me an email. But there's four things that he kind of puts forth. There's the chase, the line, the friends, and the journey to the day. It's interesting that within the very first chapter of Songs of Solomon, we have these phrases, let me take you away, let us hurry. And in a, in a culture of arranged marriages, especially with him being a king, there's a sense of pursuing, there's a sense of a chase, that you're wanting to go and pursue someone, which lets us know that God has a very robust, healthy theology about romance. And it's important for us to know because a lot of times the world thinks that God has this oppressive, primitive view of romance and it's just bad, and it's not the case. I mean, read Song of Solomon. But it's important for us to know and understand that within what we've just talked about the past few weeks and making sure that there is a healthy sense of God's heart towards singleness, what God's heart is towards marriage. But but Song of Solomon says something interesting in chapter two, verse seven. It's the woman literally in the middle of uh, having a romantic encounter with her new husband starts speaking to her friends, which is kind of weird. And she says this, do not awake in love before it's time. 
And there is this sense where she is feeling the, the, the euphoric height of a new relationship, a new intimacy, and she reflects back and tells her friends, if this is done improperly, it's dangerous. Let it be the right time. So a couple of things I would just like, again, we don't have a ton of time, but a couple of things I would like for you to consider if you're dating, you can write these things down, is number one is the idea of counsel. Um, it's important for you to develop a godly, wise counsel in your life before you start dating. Why before? Because if you start dating someone, you'll develop a counsel who you know will say yes to the person you now like. So psychologists recognize that between nine months and 12 months, we enter into a place called infatuation neurologically, where we no longer make logical decisions, because we have placed our best facade forward, and we have fallen in with that individual's best facade, and we think that we have cracked the code of long, uh, lifelong romantic love. And then about 12 months, 16 months goes by, and all of a sudden you realize, oh no, you're just another broken, flawed individual in need of saving grace. And so are you, which is why it's important that before you get into that headspace where you have found the one, and maybe you have, who are the people in your life you've given permission to to speak into that, who know you and say, hey, you know what? You've always been passionate about this, and I see this person isn't a passionate about Have you thought about that? Or, hey, I've noticed this about your character changing when you're around this person. Who is that counsel that speaks into that? Secondly, is character. You have to choose that the most attractive thing about that person would not be physical or intellectual, economical. It would be it's that person's character. Proverbs 31.10 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, and I would just say a man who fears the Lord, is to be praised. And this is not like rocket science, right? Gravity catches up with all of us. And eventually you just realize, like, wow, that beautiful person has become a different kind of beautiful. And, and that charm that they used to have, they were so charming, all of a sudden they just seem tired and stressed out. But there's something about character, there's something about a, a, an honor and a fear of the Lord that stands the test of time more than good looks and charm. And so I'd encourage you, if you're thinking about dating, who's your counsel and what's the character you're looking for? Not the Enneagram type, not the like, okay, I'm going to find the perfect person who's compatible with me. No, no. What kind of godly character resides within that person that's drawing to you? Now, don't get me wrong. Was I attracted to Jen? Yes, still am. I'm thankful. My wife's a babe, you know? Sue me. Um, but here's the thing. Her brother's just sitting in the room. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> but I remember meeting Jen, and although I was attracted to her, although she was very charming, there is something about her character and her love for Jesus I had never seen before. And that is still the thing that makes her most beautiful of all. And I cannot encourage you enough to, to, to hold on to that and make that your focus, which leads to our, just kind of our third little point here. It's Christ, right? It's Christ has to be central to that. Why, does it make someone better? No. But it gives you this, this point to come back to again and again for repentance, for transformation, and so I have to, I have to encourage you because a lot of people are like, well, what's the, what's the big deal? The big deal is that when Christ is not a part of the picture, then that person's own character and self-worth has to be enough to sustain them a lifetime. 
But when Christ is central, they have this ability to go back to repentance, confession, transformation. You have a well to draw from that will not only serve you, it'll serve that person. And most importantly, every single fight that Jen and I get into is because somehow I needed Jen to be someone that she was not. I needed her to be Jesus. But the problem is, if Jesus isn't a part of that equation, I'll always think that Jen needs to be Jesus. I'll always think my spouse needs to be someone that they're not. But when Christ is Lord of my life, I don't need my wife to be anything other than who she is. A beautiful yet broken, flawed person who's been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I can view her as a gift because everything else is flowing down from from who Christ is. Next is, he talks about the line. We're gonna save that uh, till next week. Is that my time? You're you're done. (laughs) Because uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that. The one thing I will say within dating is, is please, before you guys ever even hold hands, you know, before you guys start kind of kissing or anything like this, talk about boundaries. Talk about boundaries. And that this, isn't, this isn't legalistic, right? This is wisdom. This is the do not awaken love before it's time. This is in Ephesians 5. It says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is this Greek word porneia, which means anything that is sexual outside of marriage. It's, it's, it's all inclusive. And the word hint literally means don't even mention it. It should be so far from who you are. And so when I think boundaries, we think, oh, well, that's kind of rigid. No, 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 this is freedom. This is freedom that God is going to give you through that. Thirdly, he talks about friends, right? Who are those people who can speak into your life? Proverbs 15, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many ad- advisors, they succeed. And a couple last things, the journey to the wedding day. Proverbs 24 says, put your outdoor work in order and get your friend fields ready. After that, build your house. This is a reference to marriage. This is a reference to, hey, get everything ready and then build your home. There's an order to things. So guys and girls, if you're trying to look for someone to date, don't marry a project. Let them have lived enough life to know that there is a work ethic, a drive, an emotional and mental uh, state of being that, that is, is ready to step into relationship. Do not think, oh man, I can see what they're gonna be. Don't play that game. Um, listen, you're, you're not better than Jesus. If Jesus is having a hard time with that person, so will you, okay? <laughs> let, let that person... Let Jesus do that work first and then be like, okay, now I can come in. But please don't think that somehow you are the answer to that person's problems. Let them do the work in order to get the fields ready after that build your house. Let that order take place. And lastly, I just want to encourage you with this verse in Proverbs 4. It says, above all else, guard your heart. When it comes to dating, you have to enter into it with a sense of guarding your heart. And what that means, I think, is twofold. One, I think the thing is what we just talked about. Use wisdom, use discernment, have wise counsel. But secondly, I think guarding your heart can also mean make sure that the wounds of your past have not calloused you. Sometimes guarding your heart isn't building a wall. Sometimes it's tearing down a wall. 
Sometimes it's allowing yourself. I remember sitting down with a couple of friends this week who, who are both in that season of life of dating. And I just asked them, like, what's it like dating, um, trying to keep Jesus at the center? And one of them pointed out, said, Some, sometimes, so sometimes the best thing that's ever happened to me was a breakup. It's the hardest thing. But through that death, God has brought life. And so we have to choose to let that life come and not let death just become something that you just say, well, this is just my future. This is just what it is. And you close off your heart and become callous. Let there be an openness, not only to other people, but ultimately to the Lord, that God can heal you, believe in you. And then through that, you will bring a gift into that relationship that you're wanting to cultivate. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. 